Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 25. Now for some time a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right with God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Hi there and very good to be with you again. Do you remember the beginning of lockdown and those regular government briefings? At every single one, each of the lecterns had three clear themes. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Every cabinet minister and medical officer would repeat them, sometimes with monotonous regularity. But I guess that they did that because they were so important. Well, here in the book of Acts that Luke wrote, I would suggest that as we've been looking at these chapters, there have been three clear themes coming out again and again. And there have been one, the proclamation of the gospel, two, the persecution of the church, and three, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I guess they are emphasised because they are so important. 
again and again in these first eight chapters. We've seen these emphases. And this chapter is no exception. After the martyrdom of Stephen, a great persecution broke out, verse 1. Did that shut the Christians up? Well, no, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This wasn't just the apostles. It looks as if it refers to every believer. Certainly it included a guy called Philip, who had been chosen as one to wait on tables, chapter 6. The third theme of the power of the Holy Spirit is particularly evident in this chapter. As well as proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, Philip performed signs, including healings and deliverance from impure spirits, verses 6 and 7. And then there was a sorcerer in town called Simon, uh, who has seen a thing or two, but when he saw what Philip was up to and the great signs and miracles that Philip was used for, he was, verse 13, astonished. The mother church in Jerusalem heard about what was going on and sent some spiritual heavyweights to check it out. Peter and John were sent, they authenticated the work and laid hands on the new disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. And the new Christians had obviously experienced something powerful, something objectively observable. Because when Simon saw what happened, he wanted to be able to do the same thing, and he offered cash. Of course, Peter rebuked him and calls for repentance. It looks as though Simon responds rightly. He asks them to pray for him. Peter and John continue proclaiming the word of the Lord, testifying about Jesus, preaching the gospel throughout Samaria, on their journey back home to Jerusalem. I don't think we can be left in any doubt that God is mightily at work. So I want to ask us a, a question this morning. How supernatural is our God? I'm sure we who are Christians would answer positively. We believe these stories. We would definitely say that God is supernatural. After all, he's the creator. He made everything. And the Bible is full of many stories of the most remarkable supernatural happenings. From the flood, the burning bush, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and then of course mighty miracles around Jesus and here in Acts. Of course God is a supernatural God. Well okay, I'm, I'm not disagreeing, I hope you're glad to hear. I simply ask, well, how much then do we expect this supernatural God to actually do today? And I 
suspect that the honest answer is not much. And so I want to encourage us to expect more. Now don't mishear me. I am not preaching the prosperity gospel. The name and claim it heresy that is sadly quite prevalent in some places. Indeed there are some churches and situations where I might have a very different emphasis this morning where I might stress the reality of trials and suffering in the Christian life where I might warn about living in another kind of unreality the dangers of triumphalism and an over-realized eschatology of expecting too much of the kingdom to come in the here and now but I suspect that is not our danger. It's true that Acts is descriptive rather than necessarily normative, so we mustn't expect life to be an exact replica of these stories. But God's the same God. Should we expect intervention? Let's take the gift of healing for an example quite clearly used by Philip here well I personally have seen a number of examples of what seem to be remarkable healings true I could keep you for a long time with lots of stories of people I prayed for who haven't been healed but as John Wimber used to say, more people get healed when I pray for them than when not prayed for. I think of the example of close friends who um, were very concerned about their young son who had been diagnosed with leukemia. And uh, they were new to the faith and they prayed for healing and remarkably he was restored and he's still well today and they are still very much involved in gospel ministry all these years later. Another friend on the cusp of conversion uh, prayed for her daughter who had the most severe eczema and overnight she seemed to be healed and hasn't suffered since. I remember Amanda's testimony saying her skin was like that of a newborn baby. Her parents have not looked back spiritually either. So let me make three comments please in the light of this passage. And the first is this. Signs and wonders seem particularly there to back up proclamation of the gospel. That's certainly the case here in Acts 8 verse 6 when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed. They all paid close attention to what he said. Not surprising. And so it has been in Acts previously. You remember Peter's healing of the beggar in Acts 3 which presented the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. In Acts 9, Saul's healing from blindness 
allows Ananias to talk about Jesus. Then in Acts 10, uh, an angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius as a result of which Peter is summoned and what does he do? He proclaims the gospel. Is it possible that part of the reason for our lack of seeing God at work so much is that our prayers for God's intervention tend to be often out of concern for our own perceived needs rather than the spread of the gospel. We tend to pray for healing for ourselves or other Christians and we pray uh, for good weather, for holidays and weddings and, and that's fine. But God seems to work more in this way in his mercy with unbelievers and new Christians. Those who, at the early stage of their Christian life, experience the most remarkable answers to prayer. The late Jim Packer said, and I quote, It sometimes seems that God blesses new Christians with special providences to convince them of the reality of his power. Perhaps we ought to be more willing to offer prayer for unbelievers and their needs. Even today, my experience is they don't refuse such offers. When we were having our extension built before moving down here to to Hove, Tony, our builder, built spilt um, boiling tar on his arm. And obviously it was horribly burnt. He went up to hospital. Uh, when I saw him shortly afterwards, I offered to pray for him. We talked about Jesus beforehand, so it wasn't totally strange for him. I prayed and uh, we then returned to Cambridge where we were then living. When I saw him again, he greeted me with a great smile and he said, it's worked. It's so much better, even the doctors are amazed. His wife was even more amazed when at their next anniversary he asked for a Bible. Andy and I were walking down to the beach last Wednesday and we met one of our neighbours, uh, Teresa, and we talked to her about Jesus beforehand. We'd that we invited her to the last BH Alpha, but she declined. But I could see last week that she was uh, in bad pain with her back. And she told us about it, and I offered to pray. She accepted. I prayed very briefly, asking for Jesus to draw near and take away the pain and heal her and and we moved on um, I saw her a little later and she said the pain was better I don't know whether Jesus will completely heal her or whether she'll take steps towards him 
that's up to him and her. But I do know that another neighbour knows that we believe in a supernatural God who is concerned for our, our practical needs. If you are a believer this morning, may I encourage you this week to pray for opportunities to offer prayer to an unbeliever. It doesn't have to be about healing. But keep your eyes open for the opportunity because I suspect it will come and then be ready to take action. Of course, such action may lead to persecution or rejection as we've seen. Maybe you say to yourself, well, it's alright for you John, but I haven't seen any miracles. Well, I would say in answer to that, hold on, you are a miracle, and you are surrounded by miracles, because there's no greater miracle than the new birth. When someone like you or me, who were in rebellion to God, trapped in our own sin and self-centeredness, have been transformed and transferred from darkness to light and given new birth in Christ. Only the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit can do that. And that leads me to my my second comment. Beware underestimating the spiritual battle and the powers of darkness. It's quite clear from this passage that there were forces of darkness at work too. Verse 7, for with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many. And there's no question about the reality of sorcery, verse 9. Let's remember that the Bible specifically tells us that it's the God of this age that has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. One of the results of our lack of seeing the supernatural is that we don't take spiritual warfare seriously. We don't realise just how much we've accepted the secular, scientific worldview that is so prevalent today, a worldview that dismisses the idea of the devil and demons as fairy tale stuff. But we believers are not conformed to the thinking of this world. I believe in the devil because Jesus did. He and struggle with him. He taught much about him, and he delivered people from demons. Certainly it's true that other than the West, Christians know the reality of the powers of darkness. I've travelled in Africa and Asia particularly, and I can tell you that hardly anyone there, believer or not, has any problem 
with the ideas of forces of evil. The power of the medicine man and curses still cause great fear and darkness. But actually evil is much closer to home. Apart from the evil of the sex slave traffic, occultism is on the increase. Millions of people still consult their horoscope day by day. Google occult and there are just under 10 million references. An actress friend of ours who you would know if I told you her, her name was involved in a film which focused on the occult. It was through that as an unbeliever that she came to realise the reality of the spiritual forces for evil and, praise God, wanted to find out more about God and as a result came uh, on one of our Alpha courses and found Christ and is still following him today. We need to wake up to the reality of the spiritual battle. Of course we must avoid the other extreme of becoming obsessed with the dark side. The enemy is happy with either extreme. Fascination or dismissal. Just be aware of the reality of evil and make sure you put your spiritual armour on. My third comment is that receiving the Holy Spirit is clearly part of the Gospel. We must face up to difficulties in this story. We're told that as a result of Philip's proclamation and the signs and wonders, they believed and were baptised, verse 12. But Peter and John go up to Samaria, and verse 13, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. And verse 17, Peter and John place their hands on them, and they receive the Spirit. Well now, these verses have been used by classic Pentecostalism to argue for a two-stage initiation into the Christian life. The first step being conversion, and the second a baptism in the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Is this right thinking? The answer is no. The plain and general teaching of the apostles is quite clearly a single stage initiation in which we repent, believe and receive both forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. So the natural explanation of the delayed gift of the Spirit here is that this was the first occasion when the gospel was proclaimed not only outside Jerusalem but in Samaria. There had been a huge division between Jews and Samaritans for centuries. 
And in those unique historical circumstances, it was right for the apostles to act unusually in authenticating the evangelism. That's not to say, however, that there is not always more of the Spirit to grow into for every Christian. All believers receive the Spirit when we believe, but it is only by the indwelling supernatural power of that Spirit that we grow into Christian maturity. During this lifelong journey of growth, every Christian should experience deeper, fuller, richer times with God. Indeed, the Apostle Paul commands us, Ephesians 5 verse 18, go on being filled with the Spirit. A major part of the Holy Spirit's power is that he gives an an increase for love of God's word, a greater grasp of Christ's love for us, and a growth in Christ's likeness. Are you an obedient Christian? Are you imploring God for more of the Holy Spirit? If you're inquiring into Christianity this morning and listening in because you're interested and wondering, I would say to you, great, keep on researching. Grapple with the reality of evil and consider God, who is more powerful than any evil and still at work today. If you are a committed Christian, I would say this, make sure you stay on message. Expect persecution, but keep proclaiming Christ anyway, confident that God's powerful Holy Spirit is still at work.